From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is the data economy, and more specifically, democratizing data, making data more open, accessible, controllable by users, and not just tech companies and their customers, but also citizens and within government itself. But what does a fair data economy look like when a few companies control your data? Two words for you. Algorithmic rent. My guest is Tim O'Reilly, the founder, CEO, and chairman of O'Reilly Media. He's a partner in the early stage venture firm O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures. He's also on the boards of Code for America, Pure J, Civis Analytics, and PopFox. He recently wrote the book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. If you're in tech, you'll recognize the iconic O'Reilly brand, pen and ink drawings of animals on technology book covers, and likely picking up one of those books helped build your career, whether as a designer, software engineer, or CTO. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with the Midier Network. Welcome, Tim. Uh, glad to be with you, Laurel. Well, so let's just first mention to our listeners that in my previous career, I was fortunate enough to work with you and for O'Reilly Media, and this is now a great time to have this conversation because all of those trends that you've seen coming down the pike way before anyone else, open source, Web 2.0, government as a platform, the maker movement, we can frame this conversation with a topic that you've been talking about for a while, the value of data and open access to data. So in 2021, how are you thinking about the value of data? Well, there's a couple of ways I'm thinking about it. And the first is, it is really that the conversation about value is, is pretty misguided in a lot of ways. It, when people are saying, well, why don't I get a share of uh, the value of my data? And of course, the answer is you do get a share of the value of your data. You know, when, when you trade Google data for email and uh, search and maps, uh, you're getting quite a lot of value. I actually did some back of the napkin math recently, uh, you know, that, that basically was about, well, what's the average revenue per user? You know, Facebook annual revenue per user uh, worldwide is about $30. That's $30 a year. Now, you know, the profit margin is about 26. So that means they're making $758 per user per year. So you get a share of that? You know, do you think that, that you're, you know, one or $2 that you might the most extreme be able to claim as your share of that value is, is, you know, Facebook's worth that to you. And I, I think in a similar way, you know, you look at Google, you know, it's a slightly bigger number, uh, you know, their, their, their average profit per user is about $60, you know, but so, okay, still, let's just say you've got a quarter and that's $15 a year. That's a buck 25 a month. You pay 10 times that for your Spotify, you know, so effectively you're getting a pretty good deal. So the question of value is the wrong question. The question is, is the data being used for you or against you? And I think that's really the question. When people are, you know, when companies are using the data for our benefit, it's a great deal. When companies are using it to manipulate us or to direct us in a way that hurts us or that, you know, enhances their market power at the expense of competitors who might provide us better value, then they're harming us with our data. And that's where I'd like to move the conversation. 
And in particular, I'm focused on a particular class of harm that I started calling algorithmic rents. And that is, when you think about the data economy, it's used to shape what we see and hear and believe. You know, this obviously became very obvious to people in uh, the last U.S. election. Uh, but j- misinformation in general, advertising in general, is increasingly guided by data-enabled uh, algorithmic systems. And the question, you know, that I think is fairly profound is, are those systems working for us or against us? And if they are turned extractive, uh, where they're basically working to make money for the, the company rather than to give benefit to the users, then we're getting screwed. And so what I've been trying to do is to start to document and track and establish this concept of the ability to control the algorithm as a way of controlling who gets what and why. And I've been focused less on the user end of it, mostly, and more on the supplier end of it. Because let's take Google. Google is this intermediary between us and literally millions or hundreds of millions of sources of information. And they decide which ones get the attention. And for the first decade and a half of Google's existence, and still in many areas that are non-commercial, which is probably about probably 95% of all searches, they are using the tools of what I have called collective intelligence. Uh, you know, everything from what do people actually click on? What do the links tell us? What's the value of the links? You know, page rank, all these things to give us the result that they really think is the best thing that we're looking for. So back when Google uh, uh, IPO'd in 2004, they attached an interview with Larry Page in which he said, our goal is to help you find what you want and go away. And Google really operated that way. And and even their advertising model was designed to uh, satisfy user needs. Pay-per-click was like, we'll only pay you if you actually click on the ad. You only charge the advertiser if they click on the ad, meaning that you were interested in. They had a very positive model. But I think in the last decade, they, they really decided that they need to allocate more of the values to themselves. And so if you, if you contrast a Google search result in a commercially valuable area, you can still contrast, you can contrast it with Google of 10 years ago, or you can contrast it with a non-commercial search today. You know, you will see that if it's commercially valuable, most of the page is given up to one of two things. Uh, Google's own properties or advertisements. And what we used to call organic search results are on the phone. They're often on the second or third screen, you know, on, on, even on, on, a, on a laptop. They might be a little one that you see down in the corner. You know, the, the user generated user valuable content has been superseded by content that Google or advertisers want us to see. That is, they're using their algorithm to put the data in front of us, not that they think is best for us, but that they think is best for them. Now, I, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, another thing back when Google first was founded uh, in the original Google search paper uh, that Larry and Sergey wrote while they were still at Stanford. Uh, they had a, an appendix on advertising and mixed motives and, and that they didn't think a search engine could be fair. And they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to counter that when they adopted advertising as their model. But I think eventually they lost. So too Amazon. Amazon used to take hundreds of different signals to show you what they really thought were the best products for you, the best deal. 
And it's, it's hard to believe that that's still the case when you do a search on Amazon and almost all of the results are sponsored. You know, advertisers who are saying, no, no, us, take our product. And, 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 and effectively, uh, Amazon is using their algorithm to extract what economists call rents, you know, from, from the people who want to sell products on their site. And it's very interesting. The concept of rents has really entered my vocabulary really only in the last couple of years. And there's really two kinds of rents. And both of them have to do with, with a certain kind of power asymmetry. And the first is is a rent that you get uh, because you control something uh, valuable. You know, you you think of the 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 ferryman in you know in the in the uh, you know Middle Ages who basically said, yeah, you you know you got to pay me if you want to cross the river here, you know, or a bridge toll. Uh, you know, th- that's what people would call rents. It was also the fact that the local warlord was able to tell all the people who were working on quote his lands that uh, you have to give me a share of your crops. And that, that, that kind of rent that comes as the result of a power asymmetry, I think, is, is kind of what we're seeing here. There's another kind of rent uh, that I think is, is also really worth thinking about, which is that when something grows in value independent of your own investments, and I haven't quite come to grips with how this applies in the digital economy, but I'm, I'm convinced that you know, because the digital economy is not unique to other human economies that it does. And then think about land rents. You know, when you build a house, you've actually put capital and labor and you actually made an improvement and there's an increase in value. But let's say that, you know, uh, a, a thousand or in case of a city, millions of other people also build houses. The value of your house goes up because of this collective activity. And that value you didn't create, or you created it, you co-created it with everyone else. Uh, when government collects taxes and builds roads, and schools, infrastructure, again, the value of your property goes up. And that kind of interesting question of the value that is created communally being allocated instead to a private company instead of to everybody is, I think, another piece of this question of rents. I don't think the right question is, you know, how do we get our, you know, one or two or five dollar share of, you know, Google's profit? The right question is, is Google creating enough of a common value for all of us? Or are they keeping that increase that we create collectively for themselves? So, no, it's not just monetary value, is it? Um, we were just speaking with um, Perminder Singh from IT for Change and the value of data commons. Data commons has always been part of the idea of the good part of the internet, right? When people come together and share what they have as a collective, and then you can go off and find new learnings from that data, build new products, really spur the entire building of the internet and, and this collective thinking, this collective intelligence. Are you seeing that uh, increasingly intelligent algorithmic possibilities. Is that what is starting to destroy the data common? Or is it, or both perhaps, more of a, a human behavior, a societal change? Well, both in a certain way. Uh, I think one of my big ideas that I, I think I'm going to be pushing for the next uh, decade or two, uh, 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 unless unless I succeed, as I have in, with some past uh, campaigns, is... Uh, to get people to understand 
that our economy is also an algorithmic system. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to think, you know, we have this moment now where we're so focused on big tech and the role of algorithms at, you know, Google and Amazon and Facebook and app stores and, and, and everything else. But we don't take the opportunity to ask ourselves, how does our economy work like that also? Uh, and, and I think there's some really powerful analogies between, say, uh, the incentives that drive Facebook and the incentives that drive uh, every company, the way those in- incentives are expressed. You know, and, and this just like we could say, you know, why does Facebook show us misinformation? What's in it for them? Is it just a mistake or are there reasons? And you go, oh, well, actually, yeah, it's, 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 it's highly engaging, highly valuable content, right? And you go, well, is that the same reason why Purdue Pharma uh, gave us misinformation about the addictiveness of OxyContin. And you go, oh, yeah, it is. You know, and why would companies do that? Why would they be so antisocial? And then you go, oh, actually, because there's a master algorithm in our economy, which is expressed through our financial system. You know, our financial system is now primarily about stock price. You know, and you go, okay, companies are told and have been for the last 40 years that their prime directive, going back to you know, Milton Friedman, the only, you know, responsibility of a business is to increase value for its shareholders, you know, and then that got embodied in executive compensation in corporate governance. You know, we literally say humans don't matter. Society doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is to return value to your shareholders. And the way you do that is by increasing your stock price. So we have built an algorithm in our economy, which is clearly wrong, just like Facebook's focus on let's show people things that are you know more engaging turned out to be wrong. The people who came up with the both of these ideas thought they were going to have good outcomes, but when the, you know Facebook has a bad outcome, we're saying you guys need to fix that. But when our tax policy, when our incentives, when our corporate governance comes out wrong, we go well, well that's just the market. It's all like the law of gravity; you can't change it. And you go no. And that's really the point of like my, the reason why my book was subtitled What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us? Because the idea that we have made choices as a society that are giving us the outcomes that we are getting, that, that we've baked them into the system in the rules, the fundamental underlying economic algorithms, and that those algorithms are just as changeable as the algorithms that are used by a Facebook or a Google or an Amazon. And they're just as much under, under the control of human choice. And I think there's an opportunity, instead of demonizing tech, to use them as a mirror and say, oh, you know, we need to actually do better. And I think we, we see this in small ways. You know, we're starting to realize, oh, you know, when we build an algorithm for, you know, criminal justice and, you know, sentencing and we go, oh, it's, it's biased because we fed it biased data, we're using you know, AI and algorithmic systems as a mirror to see more deeply what's wrong in our society. You know, like, wow, you know, our judges have been biased all along. Our courts have been biased all along. And we just, when we built the algorithmic system to, to, you know, we trained it on that data, it replicated those biases. And we go, really? That's what we've been saying? And I think in a similar way, there's a challenge for us to look at the results of our economy as the results of a biased algorithm. 
And that really is just sort of that exclamation point on also other societal issues, right? So if racism is baked into society and it's part of of what we've known as a country in America for generations, how is that surprising? Um, We can see with this mirror, right, Um, so many things coming down our way. And I think 2020 was one of those seminal years that just proved to everyone that mirror was absolutely reflecting what was happening in society. We just had to look in it. So when we think about building algorithms, building a better society, changing that economic structure, where do we start? Well, I mean, obviously the first uh, step in any change is a, a new mental model of how things work. You know, if you think about the progress of science, it comes when we actually have in some sense, a better understanding of the way the world works. And I I think we are at a point where we have an opportunity. There's this wonderful line from a guy named Paul Cohn. Uh, He's a professor of computer science now at the University of Pittsburgh, but he used to be the the, uh, uh, program manager for AI at DARPA. We were at one of these AI governance things at the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he said something that I just wrote down and I've been quoting ever since. He said, the opportunity of AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. And I think there's an amazing opportunity before us in this AI moment to build better systems. And and that's why I'm, I'm particularly sad about this point of algorithmic rents and, for example, the turn of or the apparent turn of Google and Amazon towards, you know, cheating in the system that they used to run as a fair broker. And, you know, and, and that is that they have shown us that it was possible to use more and more data, better and better signals to manage a market. You know, it, there's this idea in traditional economics that in some sense money is the coordinating function of, of, you know, what Adam Smith called the invisible hand. That is the, the people are pursuing their self-interest in a world of perfect information. Uh, everybody's going to figure out what is their self-interest, which of course is uh, not actually true. But in the theoretical world, uh, let's just say that it is true, uh, you know, that people will say, oh, yeah, that's, that's what that's worth to me. That's what I'll pay, you know, and there's sort of this whole question of marginal utility. And it's all around money. And the thing is, so fascinating to me about Google organic search was that it's the first large scale example I think we have. Uh, you know, when I say large scale, I mean global scale as opposed to, uh, you know, say a, a barter marketplace. Uh, it, it's a marketplace with billions of users that was entirely coordinated without money. And you say, how can, I, how can you say that? Because, of course, Google was making scads of money. But they were running two marketplaces in parallel. And in one of them, the marketplace of organic search, remember the 10, you know, the 10 blue links, you know, which is still what Google does on a non-commercial search. You, know, uh, you have hundreds of signals, you know, uh, page rank, uh, you know, full text search now done with you know, machine learning. You have... Um, uh, you know, things like the long click and the short click. When people, if, if somebody clicks on the first result and they come right back and click on the second link, and then they come right back and they click on the third link and then they go away, you go, Oh, 
looks like the third link was the one that, uh, you know, worked for them. That's, that's collective intelligence, you know, harnessing all that user intelligence to coordinate a market so that you literally have for billions of unique searches, the best result. And all of this is coordinated without money. And then off to the side, they had, well, if, if this is commercially valuable, there may be some advertising search. And now they've kind of preempted that organic search whenever money is involved. But the point is, if we're really looking to say, how do we model and manage complex interacting systems? We have a great use case. We have a great demonstration that is possible. And now I start saying, well, what other kinds of problems can we do that way? And you look at a group like uh, Carla Gomez's uh, Institute for Computational Sustainability out of uh, Cornell. You know, they're they're basically saying, well, let's look at various kinds of ecological factors. and Let's take lots and lots of different signals into account. And so, for example, they did a, a project with uh, uh, you know, Brazilian power companies to kind of help them take, uh, you know, not just well, where should we site our dams based on what will generate the most power, but what will dis, dis, you know, uh, disrupt the fewest communities? What will, uh, you know, affect endangered species the least? And they were able to come out with better outcomes than just the normal ones. They did this amazing project with California rice growers, you know, where they basically realized that if they could adjust the timing of when they release the water into the rice paddies to, to match up with the migration of birds, the birds actually acted as natural uh, pest control in the rice paddies. Uh, you know, just amazing stuff that we could start to do. And I think there's an enormous opportunity. And this is kind of part of what I mean by the, the data commons, because many of these things are going to be enabled by a kind of interoperability. You know, I think one of the things that's so different between the early web and today is the presence of walled gardens, you know, where, you know, Facebook is a walled garden. Uh, you know, Google is increasingly a walled garden. You know, so many of the, you know, more than half of all Google searches, you know, begin and end on Google properties. They don't go out anywhere on the web. But the web was this triumph of interoperability. It was the building of a global commons. And that commons has been walled off by these, you know, every company trying to say, well, we're going to try to lock you in. So the question is, how do we get a focus on interoperability and lack of lock-in uh, and, and move this conversation away from, oh, oh, you know, pay me some money for my data when I'm already getting services? I go, no, just have, have services that actually give back to the community and, and have that community value be created is far, far more interesting to me. Yeah. So breaking down those walled gardens... Um, or I should say maybe perhaps just creating doors <laughs> where data can be extracted that should belong in the public. So how do we actually start rethinking data extraction and governance, you know, as a society? Yeah, I mean, I think there's several ways that that happens. And, and they're, they're, they're not exclusive. They kind of co-evolve together. And people will look at, for example, the role of government in dealing with market failures. And you could, you could certainly argue that, you know, what's happening in terms of the concentration of power by the, the platforms is a market failure and that, you know, perhaps antitrust might be appropriate. You can certainly say that, you know, the work that the European Union has been leading on with, uh, you know, privacy uh, legislation, uh, you know, it is an attempt by government to regulate some of these misuses. But I think we're in the very early stages of figuring out what a government response ought to look like. And I think it's really important 
for individuals to continue to push the boundaries of what do we want out of out of the companies that we work with. When we think about those choices we need to make as individuals and then as part of a society, right? Um, the Mid-Year Network is focusing on how we reimagine capitalism. And when we take on a, a large topic like that, you and Professor Mariana Mazzucato at the University College of London are researching that very kind of challenge, right? So when we are extracting value um, out of data, how do we think about reapplying that, but in the form of capitalism, right, that everyone also can still connect to and understand? Like, is there actually a fair balance where everyone gets a little bit of the pie? I, th- I think there is. And I, I think the, um, you know, this has sort of been a, my approach throughout my career, which is to assume that for the most part, people are good, you know, and, and not to demonize uh, companies, not to demonize executives, not to demonize industries, but to ask ourselves, you know, a, first of all, what are the incentives we're giving them? What are the directions that they're getting from society? But also to ask themselves, do they understand what they're doing? You know, so if you look back at my advocacy, you know, 22 years ago or 20, whenever it was, 23 years ago about open source software, it was really focused on not, you know, you could, you could look at the free software movement as it was defined at the time as a kind of uh, analogous to a lot of the privacy efforts or the regulatory efforts. It was like, we're going to use a legal solution. You know, we're going to kind of come up with a license to keep these bad people from doing this bad thing. And what I, I and other early open source advocates realized that, no, actually, we just have to tell people why sharing is better, why it works better. And we started telling a story about what was the value that was being created by releasing source code for free having it be modifiable by people. And, and, and once people understood that, open source took over the world, right? Because we were like, oh, this is actually better. And I think in a similar way, I think there's a kind of ecological thinking, ecosystem thinking that we need to have. And I just mean in the narrow sense of, of, of you know, ecology. I mean, literally business ecosystems, economy as ecosystem. You know, the fact that, you know, for Google, the health of the web should matter as much as their, or should matter more than their own profits. You know, at O'Reilly, we've always had this slogan, create more value than you capture. And it's a real problem for companies. They, you know, for, for me, you know, one of my missions is to convince companies, no, if you're creating more value for yourself, for your company, than you're creating for the ecosystem as a whole, you're doomed. You know, and of course that's true, you know, in the physical ecology. You know, when humans are, are basically using up more resources than we're, we're uh, you know, putting back, uh, where we're, we're passing off all these externalities to our descendants, that's obviously not sustainable. And I think the same thing is true in business. If you build an economy where you're, where you're taking more out of the system than you're putting back, where you're creating, you know, then guess what? You're not long for this world. You know, whether that's because you're going to enable competitors or because you're going to, you're, you're going to, you know, uh, your customers are going to turn on you, uh, or just because the, the, you're, you'll, you'll lose your creative edge. Uh, these are all consequences. And I think we can, we can teach companies 
that these are the consequences of of not uh, creating value enough value for others. And not only that, who you have to create value for, because I think Silicon Valley has been focused on, well, as long as we're creating value for users, nothing else matters. And I don't believe that. You know, like if you don't create value for your suppliers, for example, they're going to stop being able to innovate. You know, you know, if Google is the only company that is able to profit from web content or takes too big a share, hey, guess people will just stop creating websites. Oh, guess what? They went over to Facebook. Uh, you know, Google actually, their best weapon against Facebook was not to, to build something like Google Plus, which was trying to build, you know, their rival wall garden. It was to, basically to make the web more vibrant. And they didn't do that. You know, so Facebook's wall garden outcompeted the, you know, the open web partly because guess what? Google was sucking out a lot of the economic value. Speaking of economic value, when data is the product and as the Amidir network defines data, right? So uh, value does not diminish. It can be used to make judgments of third parties that weren't involved in your collection of data originally. Uh, Data can be valuable, more valuable when combined with other data sets, which we know. And then data should have value to all parties involved. Data doesn't go bad, right? We can kind of keep using this unlimited product, when I say we, but the the algorithms can, to sort of make decisions about the economy for a very long time. So if we don't actually step in and start thinking about data in a different way, you're actually sowing the seeds for the future and how it's being used as well. I I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I I will say that I, I don't think it's true that data doesn't go stale. It obviously does go stale. In fact, there's this great quote from Gregory Bateson that I've remembered probably for most of my life now, which is, uh, uh, information is a difference that makes a difference. And when something is known by everyone, it's no longer valuable, right? So, you know, it's literally that ability to make a difference that makes data valuable. So, so I guess what I would say is, no, you know, uh, data does go stale and it has to keep being collected. It has to keep being cultivated. But to the second part of your, your, your point, which was that the decisions we make now are going to have ramifications, uh, far into the future. I completely agree. I mean, everything you look at in history, we are, you know, we have to think forward in time and not just backwards in time. Uh, because the consequences of the choices we make will be with us long after we've, we've, uh, you know, reaped the benefits and gone home. You know, I guess I would just say, I, I believe that humans are fundamentally social animals. I've recently gotten very, uh, interested in the work of David Sloan Wilson. He's an evolutionary biologist. One of his great sayings is, uh, selfish individuals outcompete altruistic individuals, but altruistic groups outcompete selfish groups. And, you know, in some ways, the history of, of human society are advances in cooperation of larger and larger groups. And the thing that I guess I would sum up, you know, where we were with the internet, those of us who were around the early optimistic period were saying, oh my God, this was this amazing advance in, you know, distributed group cooperation. And still is, you know, you look at things like global open source projects, you look at things like the universal information sharing of the World Wide Web. 
you look at the progress of, of open science, you know, there's so many areas where that is still happening. But there is this counterforce that we need to wake people up to, which is making walled gardens, trying to basically lock people in, trying to impede the free flow of information, the free flow of attention. These are basically counter-evolutionary acts. So speaking about this moment in time right now, you recently said that COVID-19 is a big reset of the Overton window in the economy. So what is so different right now this year that we can take advantage of? Well, uh, you know, the, the concept of the Overton window is the, is this this notion that what seems possible is, you know, is framed as sort of like a window on the set of possibilities. And then somebody can change that. You know, for example, if you look at, at, at uh, former President Trump, he changed the Overton window about what kind of behavior was acceptable in politics uh, in a bad way, in my opinion. Uh, you know, and I think in a similar way, you know, when companies display this monopolistic user hostile behavior, they move the Overton window in a bad way. When we come to accept, for example, this massive inequality, we're moving the Overton window that says, you know, some some small number of people having huge amounts of money and other people getting less and less of the pie is okay, right? But all of a sudden, we have this pandemic, and we go, "Oh my God, the whole economy is going to fall down." You know, we've got to we've got to rescue people, you know, or, or or there'll be consequences, you know. And so we suddenly say, "Well, actually, yeah, we actually need to spend the money. We need to actually, you know, do things like develop vaccines in a big hurry. We have to shut down the economy, uh, uh, even though you know it's going to hurt, you know." businesses that we, we were worried it was going to hurt the stock market. It turned out it didn't. Uh, but we did it anyway. And I think we're entering a period of time in which the kinds of things that COVID make us do, which is reevaluate what we can do. And, oh, no, you couldn't possibly do that. It's going to change. You know, I think climate change is doing that. You know, it's making us go, holy cow. Uh, you know, we've got to do something. And uh, I, I do think that there's a real opportunity when circumstances tell us that the way things have been need to change. You know, and if you look at, 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 at big economic systems, they typically change around some devastating event. You know, you think about uh, how, you know, World War, the, the, you know, the, basically the period of uh, the Great Depression and the and then World War II led actually to the revolution uh, that gave us the, the post-war uh, prosperity because everybody was like, whoa, we don't want to, you know, go back there. You know, so, you know, the Marshall Plan, you know, we're going we're to actually build the economies of the people we defeated because, of course, after World War One, they had, you know, crushed Germany down and, and led to the rise of, of populism. And so they, they realized that, you know, they actually had to do something different. And we had 40 years of, of, of prosperity as a result. But then we got, because there's a kind of algorithmic rot that happens, not just at Facebook and Google, but a kind of algorithmic rot that happens, uh, you know, in economic planning, which is that the, the systems that they had built that created enormous shared prosperity had this side effect called inflation. And inflation was really, really high. And interest rates were really, really high, you know, in the, in the 70s. And they went, oh, my God, this system is broken. 
And they came back with a new system, which focused on, you know, crushing inflation, on increasing corporate profits. And we kind of ran with that and we had some go-go years. And now we're hitting the crisis, you know, where the consequences of the economy that we built for the last 40 years are, are failing pretty provocatively. And that's why I think it's a really great time for us to be talking about how do we want to change capitalism? You know, because we change it every 30, 40 years. It's a pretty big change up in how it works. And I think we're due for another one. And it shouldn't be seen as, oh, abolish capitalism because capitalism has been this incredible engine of productivity. But boy, if anybody thinks we're done with, with it and that we think that we have perfected it, you know, they're crazy. We actually have to do better and we can do better. And, and to me, better is defined by increasing prosperity for everyone. Because capital capitalism is not a static thing or an idea. So in general, Tim, what are you optimistic about? What are you, what are you thinking about that gives you hope? How are you going to man this army to change the way that we are thinking about the data economy? Well, what gives me hope is that people fundamentally care about each other. What gives me hope is the fact that people have the ability to change their mind and to come up with new beliefs about what's fair and about what works. And, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, we'll overcome problems like climate change because of our ability to innovate. And yeah, that's also true. But more importantly, I think that we'll overcome, you know, the massive problems of the data economy because we have come to a collective decision that we should. Because, of course, innovation happens not as a first order effect, it's a second order effect. You know, like, what are people focused on? We've been focused for quite a while on the wrong things. And uh, I think one of the things that actually in, in an odd way gives me optimism is the rise of crises like pandemics and climate change, which are going to force us to wake up and do a better job. Thank you for joining us today, Tim, on the Business Lab. Hi, you're very welcome. That was Tim O'Reilly, the founder, CEO, and chairman of O'Reilly Media, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of the Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the director of Insights the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.